Um, as Dan mentioned, th this is not, not where I normally live, but I have been part of OCC pretty much since the womb. I think um, I was 18 months when my parents moved to Oxfordshire, and I was seven when we moved into Oxford, and this has been my home church ever since. Um, I've been here and there a bit, and in 2011, you as a community um, sent Paul and I, and at that point, two of our two kids, we didn't leave two behind, we only had two, in 2011 to France. So we lived in the south of France for about four and a half years in total, and we are part of a mission organization that's called World Horizons, and um, that we love. And it's a mission organization that exists on behalf of those um, not yet reached or churches not yet planted or people not yet prayed for. Um, so we were part of a church plant in the town that we lived in. Um, there was no other expression, you know, of the body of Christ in that town that we lived. And it was a house church, so we met in people's homes. We learned French. We had two more kids there as well. And um, we had a blip in between, but which I might talk about or I might not. Um, and then 18 months ago in January 2018, you sent us out again, this time to Rwanda in East Africa, which is not, as I'm sure you probably know, what we would call an unreached nation or an unreached people group. It's very much a nation where the church does exist. The church is strong and the church is alive, thanks to 50 years of mission in that country. But it's, um, there's a movement happening across the world that you may have heard about called like mission mobilization, different phrases like that, emerging mission movements. So Paul and I, for a long time, felt like sub-Saharan Africa was somewhere. I'm forgetting this half of the room. That half of the room often gets forgotten about, doesn't it? <laughs> um, so we, for a long time, we had wanted to be in sub-Saharan Africa, but we had wrestled too with the feeling of, you know, but God... There are so many parts of Africa where the church isn't strong and where there aren't many Christians. So how can we continue to be drawn to that part of Africa? And really, with the help of um, you guys, of our church and of our mission organization, World Horizons, we, back, we began to see that actually, and what God is doing across the world, is re releasing nations, the global south, we call it, the church, richer nations, um, to be mobilized and to be sent themselves to other parts of the world. I think, I hope that makes sense, does it? So that's what we're up to in Rwanda. We're there because we believe that God wants to do something new, that God wants to do something exciting that is happening in other nations across Africa, like Ethiopia, like Kenya, where we're seeing mission movements rise up from local people um, to go to other parts of the surrounding nations um, as workers. So that's why we're there. Um, great. Um, it's also great to be doing this in English um, and not in French and not in Kinyarwanda, which is the language that I'm attempting to learn at the moment, which is the local langu language of the country I live in. And I don't, I'm sure I know there are some of you who have learnt other languages and who have gone through that wonderful, humiliating experience of learning another language and really, you know, the childlike awkwardness that that brings. And one day um, in, in Rwanda, I was starting to learn 
Kenya and I was feeling pretty chuffed with how I was doing. So I was at the market and I was talking to someone and I was trying to say to them goodbye and have a good afternoon. But instead of saying goodbye and have a good afternoon, I managed to say goodbye and you have a nice woman. Uh, which, which caused much hilarity to, um, to the market people. But there's something incredibly humiliating in a positive way, I'm trying to say, about learning to speak another language. But I am very grateful that I'm doing this in English today. So as Dan has said, we're talking about um, the book of Mark from chapter 8. But I just really very quickly want to give you a bit of a background about the book of Mark. And I keep forgetting this clicky thing. Chris. Oh, it's moved. Did I do it too many or is that right? So the book of Mark, we know Mark was a Jew. We know from Paul's letters um, to Colossians, Philemon, Timothy, that Mark was called a fellow laborer of Paul, that Paul counted Mark as one of his most useful servants. And it's thought that Mark actually recorded the sermons and the stories from Peter so it's like Mark was a, was a scribe recording the sermons and the stories that Peter was telling about the life of Jesus. So as we read the book of Mark, it's a bit like Peter is standing behind um, Mark, if you can imagine that. Um, the original audience of this book um, were those in Rome and were Christians that were beginning to face a certain amount of persecution, which is a really important thing to remember um, it's a Gentile, that means a non-Jewish audience. And we think this because there are certain Jewish words or Jewish customs that Mark goes into detail explaining that if it was meant for just a Jewish audience, he wouldn't need to do. He wouldn't need to do. Um, the book of Mark is quick moving, it's dramatic, it's action-packed. Um, it's full of the miracles of Jesus, um, like one after the other. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible. And from the get-go, Mark shows us Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And also, though, with that, he does highlight the humanity of Jesus. There are certain words and descriptions and details that Mark adds in to the book to show us some of the humanity of the story. Um, as Dan has said, Together as a church, we are looking at the store, we're looking at the call to follow. And um, when I when Dan like sent me all the info about what we were going to be doing in this series from the book of Mark, I was like, oh, geez, Dan, you're not like giving you're not giving us a summer holiday, are you? It's not like we're talking about the fruits of the spirit or like community. No, we're talking about these this specific um, kind of section of Mark about the fresh call to follow, the fresh challenge and fresh change that Jesus wants to bring. And, um, but don't, kind of with that, don't think, oh my goodness, like I don't have energy for this. It's the summer, I just want to rest. Because the good news, as I'm sure we all know, is that it's his spirit, right? It's his spirit that is at work in us. It's his spirit that calls us. It's his spirit that changes us. It's his spirit that challenges us, right? It's not about effort on our part. It's about his spirit being at work in us. So this is an exciting opportunity for us as a community and as a church to engage afresh with his spirit at work in us. Um, for his spirit to blow, if you like, through the houses of our hearts, for his spirit to blow through the house of our church, the house of our communities, the house of our workplace, wherever we are. So... 
we're looking at the middle section of Mark, and this is where, um, is chapter 8, have I told you that? No, chapter 8, we are looking at verses 27 through to the first verse of chapter 9. So if you want to find Mark chapter 8, then go for it. So we're looking at this middle section, Mark chapter 8, um, 27 to the first verse of chapter 9, and there's a geographical movement, right, in the, in the journey of Jesus at this point in Mark. It's a pivotal point in the book. It's the Jesus's journey from Galilee towards Jerusalem. So Jesus is now turning his face towards the cross. Every single step he takes is his journey towards suffering and towards the cross. He knows what lies ahead. He knows what's waiting for him. He knows what is before him. It's a key, it's key and deliberate that this section is in the middle book of Mark. It's like the peak moment that Mark wants to give you in his story. He's like, guys, we've got to the crescendo. We've got to the really important bit. We've got to the stuff that I really want you to get. Okay? Um, It's a defining moment in the life of the disciples and in the followers of Jesus. So um, let's quickly read together. I'm actually going to read from the message, which I have got up. Okay, so I'm going to read it from the message. So Jesus and his disciples headed out for the villages around Caesarea Philippi. As they walked, he asked, who do people say I am? Some say John the Baptist, they said. Others say Elijah. Still others say one of the prophets. Then he asked, and you, what are you saying about me? Who am I? Peter gave the answer, you are the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus warned them to keep it quiet and not breathe a word of it to anyone. He then began explaining things to them. It is necessary that the Son of Man proceed to an ordeal of suffering, be tried and found guilty by the elders, high priests, and religion scholars, be killed, and after three days rise up alive. He said this simply and clearly so they couldn't miss it. But Peter grabbed him in protest, Turning and seeing his disciples wavering, wondering what to believe, Jesus confronted Peter. Peter, get out of my way. Satan, get lost. You have no idea how God works. Calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to saving yourself, your true self. What good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? What could you ever trade your soul for? If any of you are embarrassed over me and the way I'm leading you when you get around your fickle and unfocused friends... Know that you'll be an even greater embarrassment to the Son of Man when he arrives in all the splendor of God, his Father, with an army of holy angels. Then he drove it home, as if if he had to at that point, by saying, This isn't pie in the sky by and by. Some of you who are standing here are going to see it happen. See the kingdom of God arrive in full force. Just, you know, a few words to read before your lunch on a Sunday. 
So Jesus is walking with his disciples. That's the first thing I just want to pause and reflect on. That there was Jesus, there was an everydayness, right, wasn't there, of the life of Jesus. His ability to observe life around him. It wasn't just a meeting at 7.30 p.m. on a Thursday night. It was every day in the mess, in the busyness, in the chaos of life. He stopped, he paused, and he made observations to his disciples to show them what the kingdom of God was like. And first, my first encouragement for us this morning is to invite others in and let them see our life and let them see how we function. I've learned, like, I, I have, I'm a better mom, I'm a better wife, I'm a better nurse, a better leader, a better prayer, because people have invited me into their life, not just at 7.30 on a Thursday night, but into the chaos, into the everyday, into the mess, into the pain, into their questions, into their confusion. They invited me in with them. It's about living real life alongside each other with the grit, the noise, and the mess that's not just my life. I, didn't, I know it's not. With the kids arguing, with, not, with me not being able to give you a presentable version of who I am, that's not real life and that's not real community. It's inviting people into my life, into my home, around the mess and the noise of our dinner table. Ruth Blakey, who um, belongs, well, Jeremy and Adrienne's daughter, We've invited her into key moments of our life, some of the most stressful transitional periods of our life, and she has seen it all. <laughs> the great, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the mess, but that is discipleship. She's being discipled by seeing our lives up close and personal, and we are benefiting from the gift of God that she is to our family so can I encourage us, let's not try and give one another a presentable version of who we are, but allow, open up the grit and the reality and the questions of our lives. This has been something that I've had to learn again over the last 18 months being in Rwanda. The culture that exists in Rwanda is people start work at seven, they finish work at five, and they go straight on to whatever might be next. So if it's a church meeting, the church meeting starts at five and finishes at seven, and then they go home and then they eat after that. So we've had people in our home. We work with students in our town because we really believe that students are a key genuine strategic part of what God wants to do in this new and this fresh mission movement um, in seeing people sent from this nation and surrounding nations. So, but because of how it works for them in their culture, and I've stepped into their culture, right? I've stepped into their culture. I can't bring my British 730-ness to them. I have stepped into their culture and I have to embrace their culture. So that is messy, quite frankly, for Having four kids who normally need to be in bed at seven o'clock, never mind starting to eat dinner, it's messy. But I have to embrace that. I have to embrace what it means to step into their culture, what it means for, for me to allow my life to be disrupted. I, we have to allow our lives to be disrupted, I believe, like by the culture that we might be surrounded by or whether it be by the Holy Spirit and what God is asking us to do. I've had to learn to flex to my rhythm that I would rather have if I could choose. 
And our kids as well have had to learn to flex to that. They've had to learn to stretch out into something. And it's, it's messy sometimes and it's noisy, but there is something so key, I think, kids, and so wherever other kids are, there is something so key and so essential to training our kids to stretch out into something that is beyond themselves, to train them that there is more to life than just the way they want it to run. So, back to the text. (sighs) Jesus is in Caesarea. This is the context, Caesarea Philippi, the context of this passage that we're reading happened in this place, Caesarea Philippi. It was a town with amazing history. It used to be the center of worship for Baal. And on the hillside, there was a cave, which is said to be the birthplace of a Greek god of nature called Pan. And further up the hill, apparently, there was an ornate white marble temple that was built to worship Caesar. Now, the thing I love about this passage, and it's in this context, in this background, that Jesus asks the, sorry, that this Nazarene carpenter poses the question to his closest followers of his identity. He doesn't ask this question, like, in a, in a home. He doesn't ask this question um, in a different context. He asks this question with the background of Baal worship, with the history of, you know, Greek gods being born and with the history of an ornate worship to Caesar. That's the context that he, that he asks this question to his disciples of who am I really? And I find that quite profound if I have managed to communicate that in any way. He's asking them, who do people say I am and how do you, who do you say I am? And I love it because I think about our own context. I think about our everyday lives. I think about whether we're in the classroom or whether we're in, whether we're a lawyer, whether we're an educator, whether we're a midwife, whether we're a nurse, a doctor, a politician, a policymaker, a student at university. Whatever our context is, Jesus poses the same question to us today. Who do people say I am and how do you, who do you say I am? And, you know, the disciples could have looked around them at this history of Baal worship and worship to Caesar and Greek God. But it's like they, they had to look to Jesus and this is who you are, Lord. Like in, in spite of what is around me, in spite of the context that I'm in, I still say this is who you are. Um, I'm looking at the time. Um, <laughs> So in this moment, Jesus puts it all to the test. Whatever his disciples might be thinking, Jesus knew the inescapable journey to the cross was before him. He knew that those against him were gathering to strike whenever they could and had his followers, those who had moved, lived and listened to him closely for three years, had they really glimpsed and understood who he was, had they really recognized who this carpenter from Nazareth was. And of course, we know that Peter responds with a you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. He's got it. 
Peter has seen it. He, what he has known in his heart, he now confesses with his mouth. This Nazarene carpenter is the Christ, is the Son of God, the Messiah, the rescuer, the one who has finally come to save them, the one who has finally come to overthrow them from the Romans, to give them a new kingdom, to establish his rule where there will be freedom and peace. Yes? Well, yes, but not quite, Peter, as you think it was to be. So then Jesus tells them to be quiet. You're like, what? Peter has just confessed with his mouth who Jesus is, the Messiah, the Christ. You are the one that we have been waiting for. You are the one that for hundreds of years we've been waiting for. He's here. He's come. And then Jesus says, be quiet. What's that about? Well, This is one of the greatest revelations of who Jesus was, yet there was more for his followers to understand. They hadn't quite got the full picture yet. They hadn't quite understood what being the Messiah really meant. Now we've seen and understood, and now Jesus needs to show them who the Messiah really was and what is the task at hand. Totally not doing my... Okay. Um, so yeah, point two, Jesus and his perspective. So now in the text, we're at verse 31, comes the question of urgent obedience. Jesus now makes statements about his suffering, his trial, and his death. So his identity has been revealed as the Messiah, the Christ. And now he describes his suffering, his trial, and his death of what is to come. The suffering Messiah, the beaten Messiah, the apparent defeated Messiah. This is absolutely incomprehensible to his followers, right? I I think it's so hard for us today to get to understand the full impact of what Jesus is saying here. It's absolutely incomprehensible. No, the Messiah was here to save them. The Messiah was here to deliver them. The Messiah was here to change their external circumstances and to change their external situation. Not to suffer and certainly not to die. Peter again puts his mouth where his heart is and he cannot believe that this is true. He says, he's just said you're the Christ and now Jesus is saying to him, yes, I am the Christ, Peter, but me being the Messiah doesn't mean what you think it's going to mean. How many times have we, have I in life said, God, this doesn't look like how I think it should look like. Life, life does not look how I, how I think it should look. My external circumstances do not look, Lord, how I think they should look. So change it, please. Thank you. Amen. Good night. Many of you probably know that um, recently, so our group, for those of you who are new to us today, Oxford Community Church, this church, our church, we are part of a group of churches, a network of churches Um, called Salt and Light around Oxfordshire, around the country and actually around the world. And one of our other churches um, is in Abingdon, not very far away. And the pastor of that church was a guy called Ed Evans. And just, um, has it been a week or two weeks ago now? Ed very, very suddenly passed away. He was a few years older than me and he died of a heart attack and he leaves an incredible wife, Kate, and three kids There's no rhyme or reason to this. There's no rhyme or reason, is there, why God would choose in this moment of his life to take Ed. 
And we can say, God, that, that does not look like how I think it should look like. And I have no answers. Telling Micah, our son, Jacob, Ed's son, is one of Micah's best friends. Having to tell my nine-year-old son what's happened to his, one of his best friend's dad wasn't an easy thing to have to deal with. But our external circumstances sometimes don't change. So what do we do when we're in that position? Jesus is saying to his followers and to us, you're not seeing this from the right perspective. You're seeing this from a human perspective and not from God's. He's saying to his followers, you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's interests, the things of man and not the things of God. He's saying, Peter, you're thinking about the things that matter to man and not the things that matter to me. And where in our own lives do we need a perspective change? Where do we need to reposition ourselves and reposition our thinking so we're setting our minds on God's interest, on the things of God and the things that matter to God? Because I can't go into it now, and I really wish I could, But, you know, we're living in what we call the now and the not yet of the kingdom, right? I don't know if you've heard that before. This is a completely new thing. If it's a completely new thing, I'm really really sorry I don't have time to unpack it. But I can point you to books to read. So if you want to know more about it, will you come and ask Dan or myself? But we're living in the reality that Jesus came, that Jesus died, and that Jesus rose again. And we're waiting, aren't we? for him to come again in the fullness of the kingdom, in his glory to restore this earth. So we live every day with brokenness. Every day we live with brokenness. We see it around us in our own lives, in the lives of those around us. And that isn't going to change until Jesus comes again. But what can change is, is our perspective. What can change is how we view things and how we see things. And um, for us, this, is no, this story is in no way on the same level as Kate and um, her kids and the Evans family currently. But many of you know that um, we've been dealing with major visa like frustrations in Rwanda. So Paul, my husband, has a business. He's an IT web designer guy, works for himself. And looking online before we moved to Rwanda, it was like, great, ticks the box. He can register, register his business Um, have his business there because we want to model something different to the local community of what it can mean to be a worker, of what it can mean to to go cross-culturally. So we were like, great. Um, So we got there, his business was registered, we applied for our first visa and we got three months and we were like, okay, all right. And that process continued for the first 14 months of our time there. We were never given longer than three months. And then finally, in February, they rejected our visa application. And they said, okay, you've reached the end of the line. We've had enough of this, had enough of you, and you need to leave. And this was a Friday um, when we got the news. And we were like, okay. Like, we didn't expect to be in this situation. You know, we expected to just blissfully walk into, like, I don't know, the fullness of what God had for us. Da-da! Like, doors would just fling, ding-ding-ding, open. And, um, but here we are, were in this situation where the doors had apparently firmly shut, and we faced the reality of, like, needing to leave the country. But um, 
we realized really through that process of how much we really did want to stay. And so we prayed, and many of you prayed, and the short story is that um, God moved. Re- really, it was a miracle. Um, and the director of immigration, Paul, managed to, to see him face-to-face, and he gave us a visa for two years. So we now have a visa for two years. But what was interesting for me in this process, looking back, because often it's easier, isn't it, when we're out of the situation than when we're living in it, but what was interesting for me was how much God had worked into my heart, how much he had worked into my character through that process. And actually, I was so grateful for that wrestle that had taken place. It forced me and Paul and our kids, it forced us as a family to ask certain questions and to wrestle with certain issues and to kind of go after something with him and and in him that we wouldn't have done if he had just granted us a visa for two years when we arrived in the country. But there was a real wrestle that we had to do. And it's, as we know, isn't it? It's in the wrestle, it's in the wandering, it's in the questions that often we are changed. And I think it's with those situations where we're forced sometimes to ask, is he, like, is he really who he says he is? And the thing is, we need sometimes to come into those contexts, maybe where our external situations are not how we would have chosen or do choose. But what is so essential, I believe, is that we wrestle with him in that, with those questions, in that context, in that situation, to find out what is he saying. It's like he asks us the question in that moment, I felt like God was asking me the question, Ruth, like, who am I? Who do you say I am in this situation, in the unknown, in the challenge? Who am I right now, right here? I'm just really quickly going to finish up because it's time to stop already. But, thanks. So, moving briefly on to verse 30. I've missed out a whole section. Um, so just quickly, so Jesus, he's, he's, he's shifted kind of the whole world of the disciples, right? Um, he said, this is what it's going to mean to be the suffering Messiah. But then Jesus goes one step further, thank you, and says, now, if anyone intends to come and follow me, you actually need to be like me. And he's saying to his followers, you need to let me lead. You need to get out of the driving seat because you're not in control and you're not setting the direction. I'm actually setting the direction that we're going. And he's saying, don't run away from difficulty or challenge or even hardship or suffering. In fact, expect it as my follower. Expect it. But you run to it with me. You run through it with me. He's always there. He was with us in the process. And here we see again the startling honesty of Jesus, his followers, us included. They can't say, we can't say that we have been induced or persuaded to follow him by some false pretense, or we've not fully understood what it means to follow him. He lays it out pretty clear. Give up your own way. Take up your cross. Stop living for yourself. He's not offering us an easy, uneventful life. He's not offering us peace. And by, by that, I mean the absence of affliction or the absence of trouble or the absence of pain. 
He is, though, offering us glory, the glory of knowing him in our suffering, the glory of being like him through our pain, the glory of being transformed into his likeness by our troubles and our challenges, and the glory of remembering and realizing that the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in us. It lives in us. The same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in us. And whatever you are walking into tomorrow, like students, I'm assuming you're students because you look like you fit into that category. (laughs) I can't say it so much about this section of the room. Um, You know, students, the context you are walking into, like your world is so different from when I was a student 20 years ago. You, you know, you, every day, the context you walk into, you've got to walk into that context knowing the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in me. It lives in me. And you can see atmosphere change. And you can see things change. And I think, anyway... I just want to say that whatever context you're going into, whether you are facing a challenging situation at work, whether you need to write a new policy on something, whether you're facing another shift in the hospital, whatever context you walk into, we walk into it knowing the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in me. And whatever I'm facing, I come to it with that assurance, with that knowledge, and with that confidence. And it doesn't mean that my external situations are going to necessarily change quickly. But it does mean that he is with me. And if he is with me, then with him and in him, I can do it. Because it's by his enabling spirit, it's through his enabling spirit that we will see things change doesn't have a whole lot to do with us. He's asking for our yes. He's asking for our obedience. He's asking for us to get out of the driver's seat and say, I am not in control. There are things I don't understand, but I am not in control. And I say yes again to you. And I say yes to your enabling spirit. And I say yes to your enabling grace. And the thing is, if we do that, it's an adventure, right? It's, it's like, it's, me- it's not meant to always be doom and gloom. Like, it's an adventure because it's life with him. It's life with Christ. And he wants us to live in the fullness of that life with him. I'm going to finish there because I need to stop. I just want to say a prayer over you. And then before I do that, yeah, I'm just going to do that. So... May we, the body of Christ, this expression of his body as the family of OCC, may we know the sustaining power of Jesus, even in our challenge and our suffering. May we wrestle with him in our questions and in our doubts. May we be changed through the process. May we get out of the driver's seat and may we become more like him. May we hear that call, not for our own comfort or our own gain, but may we hear the call to find ourselves afresh in him. Whether we have much or whether we have less, may we know that he is ultimately what we need. And may we go low, may we walk humbly together and follow the Jesus way. And I bless you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.